Today's episode is a really exciting one for me. It's the culmination of five years' work. The Perfect Media Server is now, well, I'll save it for the show. We also respond to a ton of your feedback. This is Self-Hosted 35. Well, Alex, I'll admit it right here on the show, I set up yet another SyncThing server this weekend. You thought you'd leave 2020 behind in style, hey? <laughs> I wanted more speed, Alex. Actually, it really came down to me doing the math and realizing, hey, you know, when I switch networks, it kind of slows the syncing down. But if I can pull from multiple sync servers, it kind of makes up for it and goes even faster in ideal situations. So I thought, why not set up a sync thing server on Linode and just sync a small select stuff that I really want to move fast? And it legit works. It It's really nice. It, it uh, It's like doubles the amount of files that can be transferred at once, too, from what I can tell in my brief testing. I'll be honest, I haven't continued with SyncThing after we talked about it a couple of episodes ago. Just doesn't work for me. Just doesn't do just doesn't do it, I'm afraid. But I'm glad it's working for you. Oh, you're a hater. I understand. I understand. I understand. I I I love it. I I think 2020 is the year that I stepped into a long-term relationship with SyncThing. And it's not like my I'm working on files super quick and I want to move it between machines and I want to edit a file upstairs and then walk down into the studio and have that file on my desktop. It may be able to serve that function, but I've learned not to expect that. The one caveat I do have with SyncThing is you got to let it go at its own pace. You got to let it go at its own pace. And that's why I love online learning too. And this episode is brought to you by the all-new A Cloud Guru, the leader in learning for cloud, Linux, and other modern tech skills. Hundreds of courses, thousands of hands-on labs. Get certified, get hired, get learning at acloudguru.com. Well, Alex, I think we should start the show today by, well, maybe we started by talking about SyncThing, but now we should start talking about a project in various forms, at least, you've been working on for about five years. And I think, if I'm not wrong, it's like about to reach its ultimate form. Perhaps, yeah. Well, I mean, as as we record, it's still 2020, but I think this is going to come out on New Year's morning. So happy New Year, New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2021. Hopefully it's more prosperous than the last one was. We're talking about my perfect media server project. So this was something that when I was involved with LinuxServer.io that uh, actually ha- helped me kind of form the direction for that site and the blog and stuff like that. So uh, on the 2nd of February, 2016, I wrote a post uh, about what I well, what I called the perfect media server, for want of a better name, and it's kind of stuck now. It's bold, but now you've kind of become the perfect media server guy. Yeah, I guess so. You know, I've toyed with changing the name a few times, but enough people have seen it, and, you know, I've looked at the analytics, and a lot of people have read that post over the years that... Um, in fact, funnily enough, when I moved to Raleigh, one of my closest friends now, who's also called Alex, he he uh, joined Linux Server originally. He's now one of the Linux Server devs. He joined that website because he read my Perfect Media Server post. And so when I came to town, like he uh, he met up with me and we had a uh, a few beers and stuff like that. And he was so excited to tell me that he'd built one as well around you know Docker and SnapRaid and MergerFS and all this kind of stuff. So it's been a really cool thing to share with the world. Well, you also got a great domain name for it, perfectmediaserver.com. Is that new? Brand new, yes. I uh well, when I say brand new, I mean I bought it in June. <laughs> it's I've been promising a 2020 version of this article for 
rather longer than I would like. Uh, so I released one in 2016, another one in 17, and another one in 19. And uh, you know, when you, when you start thinking about what can I write about with these uh, with these perfect media servers, when everything is just so reliable and just works, there, there comes a limit when you think, well, I, I, I can't really rehash the same thing again and again. And so this time... I was looking at the the three posts and and since I'm no longer involved with Linux server, I don't have access to edit those blog posts easily anymore. I mean, I can ask the team to to fix things and stuff, but invariably information goes out of date. And I am a huge advocate of open source and community contributions and wikis and all that kind of stuff. And so I just thought that this would make much more sense as a kind of a wiki type website with first class search categories, walking people through how to do things, you know, in a step-by-step kind of fashion, and then leave the blog posts as kind of like an annual opinion piece alongside this more kind of dry technical wiki style website at perfectmediaserver.com. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I think probably the real value for people to understand is you're telling people there's a lot of options out there, but maybe this is a great stack to use. You can use this stack. I've tested this. I've refined it over the years to do really a, a beyond beyond just okay media setup, but a great home media setup. And it's, instead of saying, oh, there's so many use cases or or the answer, which is frequently it depends, you make some opinionated decisions and kind of point people in a direction and then lay out how to do it. And I think that's maybe, for me, the real value of the site. I think as well, a lot of people come to Linux, and I've said this before on the show, a lot of people come to Linux not through the desktop, but through Plex, through running headless apps on a Synology or a Raspberry Pi or something like that. And once you start having a box in your house that does everything 24 hours a day, that is on 24 hours a day, you think, what else could I do with it? And that single spark is a huge rabbit hole. And I think one of my primary goals with the site is to equip those newer people with the skills that they need to install Ubuntu, set up MergerFS, figure out what an FS tab is, and not be intimidated by, you know, wading through lots of different disparate documentation across different places on the internet. It's just all in one place. And if you want to have multiple hard drives in a single box that are of mismatched sizes with different file systems. Well, here's a solution for you. You've already got data on these drives. You don't want to do RAID. Great. Cool. Come along and join the party. Yeah. And honestly, it's a lot of the stack that we talk about frequently. You you, you talk about Docker, kind of some of the background in there, how to get it going. And you work your way up through how to manage multiple disks of different sizes, like you say, but then also if you want to go ZFS, and here's also a Proxmox layer you should consider, any one of those could be broken out and have really have nothing to do <laughs> with building a media server. So it's kind of valuable in that way too, I suppose. So I mentioned that just for the audience who's not interested in building a media server but, but does want to learn more about Docker or MergerFS or SnapRate or ZFS or Proxmox or hardware, any of that kind of stack, stuff we talk about on this show and you want to read something from Alex on it, you can find it there too. And I could totally have seen a guy like me, maybe if I was building my media server setup for the first time, I'd be thinking, okay, I know I want to use containers, but I don't quite know how and in what way to use them to do this right. Uh, I know about MergerFS, but I don't know how to deploy it. And so 
having you write something, having used this stuff in production for five years now, there's 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 value to that. So you should be the perfect media server guy. I think that's <laughs> I said good on you. Be the per you be the perfect media server guy because I I endorse this media server build here. You are Chris, and you support this message. Wonder what the cost is. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about like what the cost would be for a minimal build of uh, something from this guide? Well, in terms of hardware, uh, yeah, in terms of hardware, I think QuickSync now for me is a minimum price of entry after everything we talked about in the last episode. So, uh, hundred bucks for a CPU. You can probably find a used motherboard that will do the trick for a hundred dollars. Again, RAM is be about a hundred, and then hard drives for an eight terabyte hard drive. Now you can go to Best Buy and pick one up for around 130 140 so i don't know let's say let's say 140 uh what's that it's like 12 1100 or so dollars for hard drives i don't know 1500 i think all in would get you five eight terabyte drives of 40 terabytes of storage for 1500 dollars all in and you own it forever uh it's you know you're not I mean, Synology make a great product. So do QNAP and Unraid's also great, but it's not open source. FreeNAS requires learning ZFS, which I know I talk about in Perfect Media Server, but it's it's kind of orthogonal to the, the main content. It's not required learning, whereas with a true NAS or a FreeNAS product, it, it is. It's just the most flexible thing for most people. And I think when you when you start looking at putting together one of these servers, $1,500 isn't a small upfront investment. And you think, right, well, where can I cut some cost? And the obvious the obvious answer is the hard drives. You know, rather than buying five, let's only buy a couple, right? And then I'll add the other three over the next year or two. MergerFS lets me do that. It lets me add drives as my, as my collection grows without having to re-silver uh, a, a ZFS array or rebuild a a raid setup or anything like that it it just grows as as i do and it changes and matures and because it's just linux it's open and it's i can go and tinker as deep as i want under the hood or again because it's linux it'll just it'll just work it's just reliable it's 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 battle tested and hardened everywhere so i really do think that if you're willing to put the time in and learn a little bit of this stuff with the information that's provided here for you. For free, I might add. I don't make a penny off of this stuff anyway, and I, I never have. I just wanted to give this information back to the community. I, I don't think there's a better solution, really, if, if you're willing to put the effort in. And I'll, I'll just give one more mention, uh, because I, as you were talking there, I was just also reviewing your QuickSync and Proxmox page, and mm-hmm. damn, you put some work into this. But I also uh, I think it's pretty clever that you embedded the relevant JB content where we've talked about a lot of this stuff in depth when it still holds up. So not only do you get a lot of the written stuff and the visual examples, but you've got like a video from Wendell in here too. And it, so you, you add the supplemental media content. I, I could see us linking this to a lot of people that write into the show and ask questions about this stuff. If I were going to contribute one area, I just thought to troll you, I'd probably contribute using ButterFS because literally everything you just said about MergerFS is why I use ButterFS. <laughs> Seriously, like word for word. So on the uh, on the on the ZFS page, there's a there's a whole section about what about ButterFS. So <laughs> okay, good, you've addressed it. I can see. <laughs> uh, well, a, a little bit, and you know, my conclusion was that using ButterFS 
would probably be easier than ZFS simply because it's shipped as part of the Linux kernel. But I've invested in, in ZFS mentally, but also I've synced seven, six, seven terabytes worth of data across the ocean to the UK. And I don't want to have to spend another six or seven weeks doing that again if I switch. Well, ironically, it's, it's, more, about, it's more about how you use MergerFS. However, I think, you know, both are great. And if MergerFS is working for you, I'm not, I really not, I'm just more teasing. But it, it, it did strike me that the being able to join mismatched disks and add them as it grows and be able to remove them easily is, is why I switched to using BetterFS on my Raspberry Pi media servers because I needed something that essentially was no cost. Since ButterFS is built into the kernel, and it also doesn't have a high... It, it's a very efficient file system. There's not a big performance penalty. I don't need a lot of RAM. It meant that I didn't have to install any additional software at all. And actually, no additional config files or anything. I, there's no config. It's just... It's all just with volume management on the command line. And it's very simple. It's like ButterFS, add volume, and you give it the path, and you tell it what volume to add to, and boom, you're done. And then remove, and as long as you have enough space, it syncs everything off, and you can remove it. And I actually have not tested that. <laughs> I could imagine it being tricky. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's there's different ways to solve all of these. And what you've done here with this is said, well, these are ways that not only uh, are very sensible solutions, but ones that I've tested. And that's the value again. Like, yeah, I could add something about ButterFS, but there's there's limited value in it you know it's my experience uh, and this is something that you've worked at for a long time so i think it's uh yeah i think mergerfs is a great solution for that kind of stuff and you know so things like zfs and snapraid depending on what your needs are also can be appropriate solutions so i've built this site around mkdocs which happens to be the same project that we're using for the self-hosted wiki which i've also put some work into this week uh, over the christmas break uh, so please go ahead and contribute to the self-hosted wiki at wiki.selfhosted.show because uh, we're crying out for content over there. But MKDocs, I'll tell you what, Chris, has become a hell of a wiki software, you know? So I don't know when you're browsing this, but I don't know if you noticed it has a keyboard shortcut. And they don't tell you this, obviously, but it's it's the same as Vim. So you can press the forward slash key, which brings up search, and then you can search for any string in any page and it will just, in real time, and then use the arrow keys. Oh, yes. And it will just take you straight to the section of that page. Just that feature alone had me sold. Huh. That's great. But they've added dozens of other features. You know, like they've got little tool tips, little info boxes and stuff that breaks up the content. The code fo- formatting, highlighting is is just brilliant. Uh, it's fully customizable, so... You know, uh, it was using the COBOL wiki for the Helios 64 review, which finally got me to really take MKDocs seriously and really went through the documentation with a fine-tooth comb. And I've enabled all the features that I want. And the only thing I haven't done yet is comments, which I might do, I might not, I haven't decided yet. But the uh, the material theme for MKDocs really is stunning. And I don't think at the moment there's a better open source documentation platform yeah i will say that just the presentation so not even commenting on what it's like to actually write on it but the presentation is extremely readable you know documentation especially something as extensive as a topic like this can be just a chore to get through but the way it lays out like you said the way it does some of the different quoting and code blocks and all of it just 
all of it is is really it's just it makes me want to use it for my stuff. So I was gonna ask you, I was gonna talk to you about MK Docs and see what you thought because, um, yeah, it really seems impressive, and probably the perfect solution for just JB internal documentation. Yeah, I mean it's it's all everything's written in Markdown. Uh, so if in the future you decided to use a different solution for some reason, it's just plain text. It's not in a CMS somewhere. It lives in a Git repo. And just copy and paste and job done. That's pretty nice. Well, so as we record right now, this isn't live. So uh, what's your plan? I assume you're going to try to get it out when the show goes live. If you look at my GitHub commit history this week, it's going to be bright green. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm working away feverishly on this to get it done by the end of 2020. So I'm aiming for a New Year's Eve launch. So by the time you listen to this episode, it should be live. Perfectmediaserver.com. Let me know what you think at Ironic Badger on Twitter. I would love to hear what you think because I've put a lot of time, probably several hundred hours into this site by the end of it, all, all told. I'd also accept PRs on the GitHub repo. So if you want to open an issue, if you find a mistake or something, which is highly likely at the pace I'm working right now, let me know through a GitHub issue or open a pull request or something. I would love to hear from you. Okay, needs more ButterFS <laughs> documentation. Serious, seriously, jeez. <laughs> you sir are a grade a troll thank you <laughs> linode.com slash ssh go there to get a 100 dollars 60 day credit towards a new account and go there to support the show linode is our cloud hosting provider and because the price is so great they can make it possible for you to use linode even for a small deployment or for a, a large deployment Jeff used Linode to test migrate his important Nextcloud setup. He just took things one step at a time, using different guides on Linode to make sure everything was right. And he says, eventually, after about three pages of notes, he did a completed, successful migration, and then he was able to take that that knowledge, take that hands-on experience, and go actually implement it on his production Nextcloud instance. He said, but in the testing, he noticed that even their uh, smaller Linodes we're still faster than his local quad-core 16-gigabyte local machine. <laughs> so he's, he's looking at maybe just hosting it on Linode.com. And Alex, I know that you're using Linode for the perfectmediaserver.com. I sure am, yeah. Same, same node as is doing the wiki and gallery.selfhosted.show uh, is, is doing me, perfectmediaserver.com. So you can really squeeze quite a lot out of these little things. I love hearing how people are using Linode. So do let me know, either at the contact form or at Chris Lass on Twitter. Because with $5 a month rigs, you can do a lot. But they also have dedicated CPU systems or or machines with tons of RAM or lots of GPU. So go experiment with that $100 60-day credit. They also offer S3 object storage. This is a great way to store things in the cloud that don't need a Linode or a server sitting in front of them. You can just generate a public URL for that asset. I do this for soundboard clips. You can do this for websites. It's a great way to get a super fast portfolio where everything's stored statically in object storage, and their prices are great. They also have load balancers, and they have data centers in 11 locations around the world. So you're going to find something close to you or, or close to your client. So go to linode.com SSH. Go there, get that $100 60-day credit, apply that towards a new account, and go there to support the show. You help make independent content like this free when you go to linode.com slash SSH. I can't quite believe just how many Powerline emails we had this week, though. Can you? 
Alex, it was wild. So I responded to several of them directly. I figured we respond to a couple here in the show when we had a, a, a few people write in about this stuff. I kind of suspected that Powerline networking was probably something that got more use and deployments than than kind of gets representation because there's so many scenarios where Wi-Fi just doesn't work, especially older style Wi-Fi, non-mesh Wi-Fi, where like either a house construction materials involved or distance or all kinds of weird things. Like I, I have... I have a family member who's next to an airport and their radio signal situation is just crazy. <laughs> it's just it's just unusable. Uh so I, I I suspected we would hear a lot about this, but uh JT wrote in to say that he's been using power line adapters for a couple of years. He currently has three of the TP-Link AV1000s, which is the kit I bought, with two different kits and he's using them without any issues. So he bought two of the kits, two of what I have, and they all link together. He says, I do have a problem with one of the rooms, though, where one adapter normally gets about 120 megabits, and then it gets out of sync, and it starts dropping packets like mad, dropping the bandwidth next to nothing, sometimes even less than a megabit, but if I unplug and replug them back in, it seems to fix it. It happens from time to time, uh, but also, I wanted to give just a quick shout-out to cloudfree.shop, one of our official, unofficial sponsors here of the Self-Hosted podcast. Coupon code Self-Hosted. He said cloudfree.shop. Finally gave him the kick in the butt he needed to begin automating his home. He says, I never want anything really connected to the cloud. And with smart plugs from CloudFree and Home Assistant, I felt like I could finally get started. The first thing that I automated was my bearded dragon's cage lights. Yep. One of the first things I automated here in the studio was my fish tank lights. So totally, totally with you, JT. He says, uh, which got rid of a terrible, constantly clicking analog timer that I used to use. I also bought a D1 Mini ESP8266 Wi-Fi board and a BME280 temperature, pressure, and humidity sensor and combined them into an MQTT-based sensor that Home Assistant uses to control the heat lamp in the cage. Heck yeah, he did. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) That's next level. Talk about like you want a uh, backup, uh, no-fail state for that thing. Uh, He says the spousal approval factor was very high on these purchases and the time I spent learning to... Solder. That's great. Says, thanks for the shows. Looking forward to the next one. Good to hear that, JT. I love it when it works out. And yeah, uh, for those of you who are new to the show, cloudfree.shop is a community-built store. And uh, we're uh, official, unofficial, official sponsors. Or they are. We just love them and we we worked out a deal. We use the promo code. And you get devices that uh, don't have uh, like the cloud-connected stuff on there. You know, sometimes I like a little cloud. Like I put a sync thing server up in the cloud, made stuff faster. But the uh, smart plug that controls the old fish tank, I don't want any cloud involved with that. You know, it's just <laughs> how it goes. <laughs> and you also don't want to have to wait necessarily on the slow boat from China sometimes for these things to arrive. So True, true. It is nice that they are stateside as well. Yeah, that's good. That's a good point. Roe wrote in about Powerline Finicky. And I think the reason I included his email is because he referred to us as Chris and the Badger, which... Which gave me like this morning AM or FM radio vibe. And I just pictured you and I doing a morning <laughs> KWRAX, Chris and the Badger. Yeah, I can I can hear it now. It's Chris and the Badger. <laughs> Welcome to Chris and the Badger. Chris and the Badger. Chris and the Badger. It's the Badger. <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that. <laughs> oh, I want a listener now to try and make us a jingle, Chris and the Badger, please. That would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Chris and the Badger, in the morning. 
Uh, he says, Chris, I was uh, surprised to hear about your experiences with Powerline. I've been using the TP-Link Powerline products for several years now, and I've had mixed results. In my experience, it works, but sometimes it has some problems that make it hard to really recommend. And he tells me about uh, different products that he's tried and troubleshooting, and he has a pretty solid-looking house layout. You know, there's nothing too crazy about his electrical. Uh, it's a modern house, um, and it's uh, shorter than 300 meters and all of that kind of stuff that you'd look at. But he says Powerline works, but it's definitely nowhere as fast as wired Ethernet. In fact, it isn't even as fast as some of the mesh Wi-Fi that he's tested. So he did several different kind of speed tests for us and said in in all, he is able to get better performance on mesh Wi-Fi. But in some situations where Wi-Fi didn't reach or there was other issues, uh, he was still able to get around 100, 150 megabits with his Powerline adapters. In one case, depending on a product he tried, he was able to get 300 megabits, which that's pretty respectable. That's really all I'd want over Powerline. I'm not expecting gigabit. I mean, if all you're doing is streaming, you know, on Kodi or something like that, you know, that's all you need. He points out, and it's a great thing to consider, is a little a little play of words that these manufacturers use. Yes. And I haven't verified this, but according to him, he says, when they say it's a gigabit, they mean... It's a gigabit when you combine the send and the receive. It's actually half a gigabit in both directions. In a perfect world when there is no wind outside and right. they're about one centimeter apart, probably, yes. So if you get a two gigabit model, which there are two gigabit units, then it's one gigabit send, one gigabit receive. And it's actually a one gigabit unit the way we think of it in terms of like Ethernet adapters. So that's a little trick of Ruskies that they like to pull that when they're quoting speeds, they're quoting just a send or receive. Uh, but we got lots of other feedback. Some people thought that it was, that maybe I'd have better performance if I didn't have solar panels on um, the RV, that they thought maybe that was causing some high degree of interference just because of, you know, the intensity of that. But uh, those systems are totally separate. The house power doesn't connect to like the, the charge controller or or the batteries directly yeah because a lot of folks wrote in and said that uh, if you have coax in your walls you can actually get power line over coax adapters and because they're, they're not carrying any signal in modern houses generally speaking anymore uh, you can actually get away with you know running ethernet over those and they were they're a very clean signal so you get better performance that way that could be worth looking into yeah i got I got a couple of spots that have coax pre-run. That's interesting. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know, Alex. Maybe one day in the future. Brad wrote in about a killer MOBO with uh, QuickSync. Yeah, he's found the ASRock J5040 ITX board. It's a mini ITX form factor with a quad-core Pentium chip. Um, and it has QuickSync version 605. Now, he wrote in about this one because uh, of energy usage. This one idles, he says, between 10 and 15 watts only. But it also has four SATA ports, which I thought, hmm, this would make a really nice sort of NAS motherboard, potentially, because, you know, four hard drives, a small enclosure, low power draw, quick sync. You know, you're pushing my buttons here, Brad. Yeah, really. Me too. It looks like a really nice motherboard. Yeah, this ASRock J5040 uh, ITX. We'll put a link in the in the uh, show notes. But uh, that, that hardware acceleration, that quick sync, boy, that, that is looking really good. And this you could totally build. I bet you for, if you had the storage, 
I bet two, three hundred dollars to build a nice system with a decent little case with some memory around this thing. It's a, a passive CPU as well, so it takes. Uh, it doesn't need a fan on the CPU. Also, it takes sort of laptop style SO dim memory. So this thing is tiny. It's got a couple of M2, M2 slots on there for Wi-Fi if you want. So yeah, yeah, go go ahead and check that one out. That looks like a really really useful little build. Stefan wrote in to tell us about some benchmarks in German that show that the latest AMD desktop APUs are getting idle power well below 10 watts, and depending on the motherboard, as low as 6 or 7 watts. So it seems like there's something to watch there too. Oh, I'm trying to avoid buying a Ryzen 5000. I'm really trying to avoid it, but stuff like that makes me want to buy one. (laughs) Hey, while we're doing feedback, I want to take a moment and mention that a cloud guru has a Python 3 scripting course for system administrators where you can develop the skills you need to write effective and powerful scripts and create command line tools using Python 3. So in the course, you're going to develop skills you need to write effective and powerful Python scripts. And it's it's a big one. So beyond the language itself, you'll go through the full development process, including project setup, planning, automated testing to build two different command line tools and more. So check out the link we'll have in the show notes for the Python 3 scripting for system administrators at cloudguru.com. Hey, so I'm sat here whilst we're recording and thought, my feet are cold. So whilst you were reading that ad spot, I lo- logged into my home assistant and just bumped up the thermostat a little bit. That's <laughs> <laughs> nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think my favorite still is because of the HomeKit integration, when I'm driving home, I just push a button on the steering wheel and I tell the the computer just to turn on you know the heaters to extra heat. We have an extra heat mode that kind of brings up the temperature more, a little quicker. And uh, so when I by the t- and turn on the lights. So when I get home, all the lights are on. Place is nice and toasty. Oh, I've been thinking about like an NFC tag on the dashboard or something that I could just tap with my phone. Maybe I I haven't done it, but I've been thinking about it. (laughs) I've been thinking about that too. I actually have an NFC tag at the door out the studio. So on my way out the studio, I can tap it. And right now it just kind of sends like an alert to the wife with an ETA and all of that kind of stuff, you know, based on my location and her location. But I have been thinking, man, it'd be pretty great to tie that in with the heating and the lighting, check to see if it's on or not. NFC tags and all of that is probably still the most underutilized area because on iOS, it kind of sucks. And I think it's similar on Android, but not quite the same where on iOS, it it just brings up, as far as I understand it, a notification prompt that you then have to tap to execute the NFC automation. And that just sounds like garbage. Not true on Android. I just tap the tag and my garage door opens. It's amazing. (laughs) That's what I want. I can kind of see maybe why Apple did it this way for novices who, you know, they don't they don't want to execute stuff randomly on their phone. But man, I I, I totally appreciate that, but I just would love a setting to say don't require user interaction. Yeah. Just yeah. it just totally kills the usefulness. I have also here on the studio mixer, I have an NFC tag. Because for some reason Behringer thought it'd be a great idea to put a like a phone holder on the mixer because the idea is you're gonna use like their touchscreen app on your phone. And uh, so I have a spot where my phone sits, and um, I just put an NFC tag in that spot. Just set my phone to D&D and turn on the studio lights, which are on Home Assistant and all that. Oli wrote into the holiday mailbag and said, I'm a longtime listener, occasional discorder from Norway. And uh, we talk about storage setups on the show a little bit, but I'd love you to go into some details with setups ranging from smaller setups to bigger setups. Do you have any strategies deciding on what you invest in? 
Uh, my backups are going to Backblaze, but I'm rethinking things a little bit, and I think I want more sane local storage, but I'm a little put off at the price. What would be a sweet spot in terms of disks and storage for about an 8 terabyte media collection as well as some more personal media like photos that I just don't want to lose? Any links would be great too. Man, this question was made for me, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it really was. So uh, perfectmediaserver.com, first of all, uh, I think is where I will send you in the first in the first instance to look at the software side of things. Uh, I will be building up the hardware recommendations section of that site over the next few months. But really, I would just take a look at serverbuilds.net. They have some amazing used enterprise gear. And I know it's quite a US-centric website, but you can still get a lot of good ideas about what to use, like QuickSync, for example. That that came from JDM, the guy behind that site, who we've had on the show before. And just take a look at what they're doing and the trends and, and the way the industry's going with, with what those guys are doing over there at Server Builds. And I think you can probably get away with a fairly minimal kind of setup. So you've got eight terabytes worth of stuff you want to store. So I would buy a hard drive that is at least eight, probably 10 or 12 terabytes. So you've got a bit of headroom uh, and, and buy a pair of them so that you, you know, can have full redundancy. Um, you're already using Backblaze. So, you know, RAID is not backup is, is a very common phrase that you'll hear people say. Make sure that you have have everything duplicated in, a, in at least two different physical locations. So it, even if that just takes the form of, uh, you know, a USB hard drive that you leave at your parents' house when you go and see them one day in the future, uh, who knows? <laughs> I, you know, the, the world is so different right now, but if it's just a USB hard drive in a drawer at a, at a parent's house, then that, that'll do the trick as well, you know, in a lot of situations, unless you have lots of media being added all the time. But I don't think that's the use case for a lot of people. I think most people, those kind of periodical backups every three to six months is, is probably sufficient. So uh, build yourself, a, a, you know, a, a small mini ITX couple of bay box and, uh, you know, stick uh, the perfect meter server stack on there and you'll be good to go. Yeah, thankfully, eight terabytes is a really pretty a pretty doable problem to solve. So, you know, of course you want more than that. You're going to, you know, at least at least I'd say go 12 terabytes, if not more, uh, if you're already using eight, ter- eight terabytes. And you could probably even justify uh, a bit more than that. But that's some great strategy advice right there and perfect timing for the show too. So, so best of luck. I would take a look at uh, Amazon.de. Quite often have the Western Digital. Um, what are they called over there? They're not easy stores because they're Best Buy, like US centric ones. They're called My Books, I think, in Europe. You can quite often get those for a you know ten, twelve, fourteen terabyte hard drive in the two hundred, two hundred and fifty euro range. So that would be a good place to start. It's not going to be super cheap. My philosophy with regards to how much local storage do I need versus cloud is it's up to you, right? It, it's it's your personal risk profile. Or, and, and how important is this data to you? Are you going to be upset if, if Backblaze, and I don't know if they're going to, but if they turn around next week and, you know, triple their prices, what are you going to do if that happens? If you have a hard drive in your closet, you know up front what that cost is going to be, what the total cost of ownership for that that storage is going to be and there's going to be no surprises or anything like that so 
I mean, you're talking to a guy that's got 100 terabytes in his basement, so maybe I'm not the right guy to, to speak to, you know? <laughs> and, you're, and the other guy who's like, I need to get more disk as fast as possible. I've only got 12 terabytes free right now. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but really, there's so many ways to, to solve it. Uh, I, but I, I'd love to hear what you do. So go to selfhosted.show slash contact to update us. Uh, and then Scott wrote in with another another question. That I, I have a sense the audience may have a few answers for us, so keep that contact link in mind. Uh, he says, I was hoping you could make a recommendation for self-hosted online cookbook. My mother has a huge cookbook full of old family recipes, which I would like to digitalize. Ideally, with OCR and the ability to tag and search the recipes, as well as preserving an original image of the old handwritten family recipe. Scott, I love this idea. What do you think, Alex? Does anything come to mind for you? Well, we covered Chowdown a little while ago as a self-hosted recipes app. There is another one, which whilst we're doing this segment, I will try and find, which I can't remember right now. But there is also uh, an old JB project, isn't there? Yeah, that's true. That is true. There is the uh, the uh, open your mouth recipes, which we actually used GitHub and Markdown for those. I was thinking, you know, Scott could get started with even out any without any software selected yet by just getting good quality captures of those cards. And he's going to want probably something he can take over to grandma's house or mom's house or whoever, whoever the aunt or uncle, whoever the, the family members you want to capture these from, because why not get them all, right? You could probably get away with something like ScanBot or the other available um, scanning apps on your phone. But you might look into scanner options too and just start there. Start getting the high quality images from there and then the software will come. I found it. Okay, it's called Vabine1111 slash recipes. What a catchy name, huh? It's a, a Django application designed for managing recipes, and it's a web app, so I would imagine it runs out of a container. But it's got a search built on top of Django's trigram similarity search engine, and it allows you to create and search for tags and assign them in batches to certain files matching certain criteria. It will sync with both Dropbox and Nextcloud, with uh, more support being added every every week. And you can import lots of recipes from different websites with uh, JSON objects and stuff like that. And there are also apps for mobile devices like phones and tablets. So yeah, lots and lots of stuff in there, uh, runs in a Docker. This is what uh, the Reddit collective thought <laughs> recommends at the moment. So I haven't tried this one. Uh, I just haven't got to it, but it's on my short list. So go and take a look at that link in the show notes. I also recall that groceries had a bit of a recipe manager. I don't recall how uh, extensive it was, but that's a past pick too. So we'll put links to all of these. The one that Alex just talked about, you could see the example of how we used Open Your Mouth on GitHub and just made it a community project so you could have multiple family members that contribute that way. Or perhaps somebody out there will know a great software project that we haven't mentioned and inform us all at selfhosted.show slash contact. The last one in our holiday extravaganza mailbag here is uh, Josua writes in regarding uh, thoughts that were inspired by self-hosted episode 33 triggered by the Helio 64 discussion. He says, hey guys, I was listening to your review of the Helio 64 with some interest since I am the owner of their previous product, the Helios 4. I believe the points you make about software are quite valid, yet I'd like to point out that there's a really hard problem to solve. I work personally with a company in Israel that makes SBCs and SOMs mostly with ARM-based system-on-chips. It's my job to make Debian available for each product to their customers. 
Long ago, when I started, I really wanted to do this the right way. I I submitted bug reports and patches to the Debian project for enabling all kinds of small things. A kernel doc config for a driver here, a customized boot script there, enabling OpenGL ES backends and shared libraries, and continuously watching and testing the distributions for things that break. Turns out, I never got to the point where I could give customers a pure Debian system. There's always another tweak that I had to carry out of tree. So to this day, I'm creating block device images with custom kernel packages, integrated binary blobs, and maybe a systemd service for loading Bluetooth firmware, and even patched parts of X or Wayland. So why do I tell you all of this? Well, the reason being, for a new product, it takes time and continued effort for mainlining all the things, and the experience can differ largely by a particular SOC in your hands. And you'll find that despite even when the vendor does everything right, it's still not perfect. To really solve this problem, there has to be a way for hardware makers who are both capable and willing to do the work to achieve something greater than what I was able to do in my job. In his opinion, it's just not there yet, he says, Alex, that the the ecosystem just can't support the kind of rapid support that the hardware needs at this stage. And, you know, after reading this, I was thinking, look at the Raspberry Pi. It's been around forever. And, of course, they've had iterations that have changed things. But you really still, even there, you kind of have to get an image that's at least been tested for the Raspberry Pi. You can now get the Ubuntu ARM image, and it will boot on the Raspberry Pi. But that's only just recently. It's And it's really not there with all distros. Yeah, you make a good point. I mean, uh, the, the Ubuntu image for the Pi 4 has made a big difference for me to the overall kind of feel of it being a real, <laughs> air quotes, a real device. And it's now in production for me. I'm using it as Pi KVM, which ironically runs on Arch. But anyway... Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, I ended up getting ZFS working on the Helios 64 after the review. Uh, in the end, it was a few days. It was a kernel update and DKMS started working again. But uh, yeah, I, I just don't know how without, you know, a, an Apple level of control over both the hardware and software, you could ever hope to solve this problem fully. Slow but steady. There are standards like server ready that uh, try to solve this more for the data center, but those lessons could be learned in the consumer devices, but there's just not necessarily the vendor buy-in. And there's not necessarily the vendor buy-in to support the development, right? That's an area where they could apply a little bit of leverage. They could hire people to just write the code and contribute it more and participate in these projects. But it's only it's only so scalable. And it's really not a problem we have on the x86 side of things. We're so kind of swept up by the power usage of ARM or the small size form factor or the price point. I think we forget some of the luxuries that we've gained over the years with the x86 platform. It just works. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to grab a special version of a a, a Linux distro or Windows or whatever it is to, to run on it. And with Apple changing to ARM, you know, based CPUs, it is, that's the first real departure that mainstream computing has seen from x86 instruction sets for 15 years. Yep. And I think that's going to influence, hopefully, in five years' time or so, the rest of the industry will, will be in a similar position to where Apple are now with that kind of level of integration. Uh, of course, Apple will be five years further down the road by then. So who knows? Maybe they'll never catch up. But, uh, it's a really interesting time for sure. And I, I, I really want to support these guys doing these projects like, uh, like COBOL, you know, they're, they're a small team, you know, they're not, they're not doing this to become millionaires overnight. You know, it's uh, they're doing it for the love I'm sure. 
and uh, they, they made a really great product. It just missed in a few key areas. So I wanted to let some of the listeners know that uh, I will be selling my Helios 64. So if, if you're interested in the market, just let me know via Twitter. You know, you'd have to wait for it to ship or anything for the next batch. We'll sort something out. Just leave a little stink on it when you ship it out to make it real special. Okay. Get a little bit of your stink on there. I'll sign the inside in Tipex or something. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I want to say also a special thank you to our members at selfhosted.show slash SRE. You can become a site reliability engineer for this show. You get a limited ad feed and you get extra content. You get a post show. I think it's going to be a doozy today. So thank you to our SRE team. You keep this show up and running. You are our reliability engineers. I want to mention that you can find our sponsor, a cloud guru on social media. It's just slash a cloud guru on any of the major platforms. So like youtube.com slash a cloud guru and go find them there. Now I know that you all know how to find this with the gargantuan amounts of feedback we've had. I mean, we really only got to a small portion of it this episode, but please do keep sending it in because it keeps us vitalized and connected with you guys. And particularly in these present times, hearing from you helps us keep the show focused on what you guys want to hear about. So Selfhosted.show slash contact is the place to go to get in touch with us. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Ironic Badger. And I'm there too at Chris Lass. And the show is at Self Hosted Show. And don't forget the network at Jupiter Signal. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was selfhosted.show slash 35.